0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble!
1: Wherever you are, however, you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Matt Cummings. All right, this week, it's the Return of the Beloved Spring Training for Your Ears segment. Sound like a pro when you talk about three operas a real opera fan should know, but no one really has time to listen to. Plus, in the two-minute drill, Kimon Murat continues to benefit from the OBS bump, and Brigitte Fossbender reveals the love of her life. Ooh, stay tuned for that. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show, on Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can just hit that plus sign. Easy peasy. Send a voice memo or email us about your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. I mean, it's it's what a deal that is. I mean, Oliver, can you think of anything better?
2: We know that your drinks are sweating right now, especially if you're in <laughs> Chicago where it's literally a hundred degrees Fahrenheit, as so your and has
1: been since about nine a.m. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what happens when a tornado comes roaring through the tra- through the town. Matt Cummings, how are you doing post uh, weather event yesterday? I'm out of the basement, so what else can we really wish for? <laughs> <laughs> I think we have a really uh, great show set up for you all. Obviously, we're missing George and Ashley. Uh, they were unfortunately well, is sucked up. <laughs> They were raptured by the tornado. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. exactly. So uh, unfortunately, they will be floating around Wizard of Oz style until they land uh, next week. But Oliver, I hear you have a little special audio clip for us you want to play. Well, uh, George received a voicemail. So uh,
2: George thought he would share it with us so we could have a little bit of remembering George uh, during this episode. It isn't from George, (laughs) but uh, it is addressed to George. So we can all think about George right now.
0: Hey, George. This is Anthony from the Bronx. I've called you
3: before, George. I'm sorry to hear you guys got canceled on the Dallas
0: Texaco show. I really enjoyed watching it. It was good to see you and and Oliver, Ashley and Matt and Dustin. It was a good show. I don't know, George, if you knew this, but there used to be an old Texaco show
3: with Uncle Milty. Carol Burnett, and now George Cedarquist. I don't know what went wrong. Anyway, sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles. But at least I can still hear you on the radio. All right, I'll talk to you later, George.
0: Have a great one. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: let's a talk some opera. Let's do some spring training for your ears. It's the
2: last pod before summer officially begins. And we realized that we haven't trained your ear holes in a while. <laughs> I don't even know if we ever did a spring training for your ears when we were on the Dallas Opera Network. So much changed. But we're t- trying to yeah. get clip heavy. Not allowed. Yeah. Trying try <laughs> to get back to form. <laughs> And we thought that we would talk about three operas, which you've heard of these operas, but you just will never get around to listen to them. Well, we did the work for you, and we listened <laughs> to them. And maybe the next time they show up uh, in the on the calendar at the Opera Company near you, like, yeah, I should see that, because I know what it's about, and I know what the challenges are, and what the good music from it is, and why it's important. So we're going to go chronologically here, and we're really trying to emphasize why you should care, why this opera should be or is a part of the canon uh maybe highlight some of the famous music and maybe uh try to explain why we don't hear these shows that often i'm going to begin with a composer who just when you hear his name you're already bored <laughs> christoph <laughs> will wilibald how do you say his name Willibald.
3: Willibald gluck <laughs> a fun gluck don't demote him He's oh yeah i forgot it was the fun.
1: <laughs> he really fun does gluck. sound like uh like a, a, a indiana jones nazi okay. in terms of his naming convention so if you
2: know anything about gluck you know that he composed orfeo and euridice and yes there are multiple versions of that which is part of his story um and maybe the most famous aria kefaro senza euridice sort of defines what he is, what he represents uh, on the timeline of opera, which is being um, a fun sucker. Yes. <laughs> uh, he wanted to remove the excesses of Italian opera that have even had even found their way into French opera. Right. Uh, he, he wanted to make the music and the drama the star and not the celebrity singers. He was looking for that, you know, often strive for verisimilitude in the music and looking for emotional truth. Uh, And even though his operas were often based on mythological characters, he was trying to humanize these people. And I will say that Mozart did a much better job of this, but uh, Gluck is the guy who did it for French opera.
1: Well, he also kind of, I think, inspired you know future composers like you know uh, uh, Mozart Berlioz and Berlioz. I would say, yeah,
2: I would say he inspired Berlioz. Yeah, uh, Mozart and he were composing around the same time, so uh, I think that they maybe inspired each other if they were paying attention. Yeah. But uh, on the timeline, Gluck comes at the end of the French Baroque and ushers in the Rococo period. Uh, you know, Rameau being the last great exponent of French Baroque opera. So um let's talk about an opera that is considered to be his best uh opera um at least the one that has the best drama the best story and maybe the best libretto that he ever set Mm. which is confusing it is (laughs) (laughs) ephigenia en tauride which is its french name um in english we say ephigenia in taurus in taurus so sometimes you see both of those names thrown around and you might think they're two different operas. They're not, it's the same opera, but <laughs> there are two different versions of it. There's the original 1770, uh, I'm sorry, the 17, Oh, I put it wrong. 1761 version, 71 version. I've lost my notes, but, um, but the version <laughs> that we're talking about is the uh, 1778 version. Yes. I am messed up here. I, I don't know what my notes say anymore. I must've gotten these wrong, but the Paris version comes later. Uh, not to be confused with Ephigine on Olide or Ephigenia in Aulis, which is an opera that comes a couple years earlier on the timeline and it also has uh the Italian version. So there are four Gluck operas that have Ephigenie as the first word, if you think about these two operas and the two different versions. So that yes mm-hmm. is confusing. Is it the same character? Yes. And you could sort of think of it as effigenie on Olide as part one Strauss's Electra as part two and <laughs> Ephesians on Torrid as part three that's how the story sort of art goes if we were trying to do like a trilogy which I think would be pretty cool actually Edomeneo slides anyway, so
3: in there somewhere too <laughs> <laughs> yes
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> the spin-off yes um, and I will say that this opera uh, because of how well it does what Gluck wants to do which is to really remove the uh, the feeling of it being a numbers show, like kind of right. erase the lines of like recitative and aria and ensemble and chorus, like where it all just sort of like free flows, like the drama. Uh, this, this opera does do that very well. So much that you almost feel like, well, where's, where's the tune <laughs> in the <this> show? <laughs> Cause it just like vacillates from, you know, ensemble recitative chorus to arioso. And there is one famous aria, which we'll get to soon. Uh, so this is the realization of his ideal of like, having an opera that felt like a play and it inspired Richard Strauss so much that Strauss wanted to, um, he reorchestrated it and created a version that was actually used yeah. uh, for a long time. Uh, he also inspired Berlioz and um, Gluck also inspired Wagner. Wagner was a fan, especially of his opera Armide. Yeah. Um, okay. So we'll get, talk about this, this show. It is the same family uh, of, Agamemnon and Clitamnestra with their children, Electra, um, Iphigenia. They really just couldn't catch a or break. This uh, family. Orestes, yeah, it's a pretty <laughs> effed up family. So in that Iphigenia, <laughs> Iphigenia on Aulid, the Aulis Opera, that's the story that most people know. of Agamemnon in the Trojan War having to sacrifice Iphigenia. And then right at the last minute, the deus ex machina moment is Diana coming to rescue her and she gets taken away to Torrid, where she becomes a priestess of Diana. In the middle of that, uh Orestes comes home and finds that um Clithamnestra has killed Agamemnon. First there's a war. Now... Well, first there's a war. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget that. No. The, the whole Trojan War thing. Yeah.
2: yeah. And so he kills Agamemnon. I mean he kills Clytemnestra and Agis I forget, I can never say his name. Uh, her new oh, yeah, her yeah, new boat, yeah. And then he is exiled. And so Iphigenia is in uh, Toreid. This is now we're not on part three. We're now in this opera. I gave you the really, really short version. And uh, the Trojan War is over. And um, Iphigenia is, uh, you know, tormented by dreams of uh, her parents, even though she doesn't really know what happened to them. And, and lo and behold, two Greek strangers are shipwrecked. And they're captured uh, on the island of uh, Toreid where she is and they are sent to be sacrificed. That's Act 1. Act 2 is where it gets very interesting. Um, Iphigenia meets the two um, Greek shipwrecked strangers, uh, Orestes and Pleiades. Pleiades? Pleiades? Pleiades. Pleiades. And uh, she doesn't know that it's her brother yet. And there's this confrontation scene where they basically... Uh, Iphigenia interviews uh, Orestes, who is going to be sacrificed by the people that she lives with, by the weird followers of Diana. And this is what that interview sounds like. We're going to hear a little clip right now. (laughs) from the Boston Baroque recording, which has Christine Gerke, friend of the show, as Virginia, mm. and um, Rodney Guilfrey as Orestes. OK, so during this interview, uh, Orestes tells her, oh, you know, um, this guy named Agamemnon was killed by his wife. And now his wife and her boyfriend are dead. And so she has a very famous lament. Uh, where she laments the loss of her homeland and the loss of her family. And this is the tune of the show. And we will hear it from a live performance, uh, just a little bit of it, sung by Anna Caterina Antonacci. That is "Oh, Malheureuse Iphigénie," uh, I'm sad song. Uh, so, uh, in Act Three, um, this is really the crux of the opera. It turns out that uh, Pleiades and Orestes, in all likelihood, are uh, lovers, and they both uh, they both are going to be were going to be sacrificed. But Iphigenia um, gives them an ultimatum, you know. You pick one, one of you, you know, uh, decide who wants to be, uh, who wants to die. And the other one gets to be saved in the hope that Orestes is the one that's saved because she started to figure it out. She's putting two and two together that Orestes is her brother. And then there's this love duet, not between Iphigenia and one of the guys. It's this love duet between Orestes and Pleiades. Uh, these hey, two hey. guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they basically are, are they're basically arguing over each other. Like who gets to die? No, I wanna die. No, I wanna die. So uh well, can't believe hear- this opera didn't make it onto our queerest opera <laughs> <brackets>. <laughs> <laughs> So this is from uh the act three. Uh this is the duet et tu encore, que tu m'aimes. Uh, we will hear uh Thomas Allen as uh Orestes and Gusta vinberg uh, the late Gustav Inberg as as uh, Pleiades. <laughs> And then in Act Four, it's a happy ending because it is a French broke opera, and we get yes. another Deus ex machina, uh, which lets everybody survive because that is how the French people like to enjoy their evenings. So, <laughs> why should you know about this opera? Well, because it does mark the sort of move towards romantic opera and you know less numbers the same thing that Verdi was trying to do the same thing that Donat was trying to do everybody's always trying to do this but this here it was happening in the 18th century um, it has great chorus um, it does pick up um, from Remo's treatment of the orchestra which in and of itself was a genius thing I think Remo did it better but uh, here <laughs> Gluck is utilizing the orchestra in a way that uh, heretofore, in Baroque operas, really wasn't employed, uh, especially in the Italian Baroque operas. And the role of Iphigenia or Ephigenia, uh has been um, coveted by artists like Maria Callis, who made a movie of it uh, because it's a great acting role. And Montserrat Caballé. That's Greek pride yeah exactly <laughs> and uh in the current generation uh susan graham has uh been one of the main and exponents.
3: stephanie stephanie Blythe, i think too
2: oh wow okay and you know i think it's great if you like greek mythology i'm a big greek mythology stan oh, yeah. and I, I love the gay stuff so i'm i'm here for virginia it is not super exciting and of course there are many different versions and you might get a version that has a lot of dance music in it which could be good if they actually have a dance troupe but more often than not You get this dance music and no movement, which just makes the opera
1: seem really long. (laughs) I think it's still worth a listen, though. And I think it has, like, certain, like, amount of, like, hipster points. Like, I feel like everyone goes and sees, uh, uh, you know, Eurydice and nothing else. Uh, but this is a great one to be like, I've heard uh, this one by Gluck. So I, I am better than you, which is really, I think, what this <laughs> Super- segment is Spring all about. Spring Trading for Your Ears is all about feeling <laughs> superior. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what is your uh, selection for this somewhat lesser known, but you should check it out anyway, opera experience that we're going through right now? So I, for a long
3: time, have carried a bit of a torch for Verdi's most forgotten middle to late um, problem child, which is La Forza <laughs> del Destino. <laughs> Or The Force I, of Destiny.
1: Which can you I just might say, like, in terms of Verity opera titles, opera titles in general, top tier title. It sounds great and, in English and Italian. It's amazing. And it really, like, I think they put a little bit too much
3: attention on the title mm-hmm. and not enough on character motivations. So <laughs> one kind of um, critique of this opera in general. But you might only be familiar with this piece uh, if you read the Series of Unfortunate Events. Novels because they it does feature prominently, um, in it. Mm, mm, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the plot of this opera definitely picks up in terms of um ridiculousness where Trovatore left off. Uh, so a summary can take a very long time, but here is the the cliffiest notes version of La Forza del Destino <laughs> that I can possibly muster. So we open right in Act One with a with Leonora, who is the daughter of the Marquess of Calatrava. And she is betrothed to uh, a young nobleman from South America, Don Alvaro. And the two of them are going to elope because her father doesn't approve of her marrying um, a non-European. Very not woke for the 19th century. Um, And as they're making these plans, he walks in on them. And Don Alvaro is going to surrender instead of fighting with her dad. But when he puts down his pistol, it accidentally goes off and kills him anyway.
0: <laughs> at
2: Gun safety, Force of everybody. Destiny Classic. 1,
3: Don Alvaro 0. <laughs> <laughs> um, at 2 picks up a year later. Uh, Leonora is on her way to try to be reunited with him because they have lost each other in their travels. She's at this inn, and she runs into who but her brother, who is in disguise as a student, looking for her. Uh, There's also a fortune teller there, um, for some reason. Uh, And Leonora hears him tell the fortune teller that he is hunting down Don Alvaro, which tells her that he's still alive. So she's going to run away to a monastery and hide to make it safe. Um, She makes it to that monastery and sings for approximately 45 minutes straight before (laughs) she is eventually given um, some refuge and peace and is hidden in a cave in the mountain behind the monastery. Act three, we've got another time jump. It's five years later. The Spanish army is now in Italy. And who has become best friends but Don Alvaro, the fiancé, and Don Carlo, the brother? They're both under assumed names and neither one recognizes each other because they do not meet in act one. Of course not. How could you have destiny if you meet in act one? (laughs) Um, Alvaro is wounded and entrusts Carlo with a key to his belongings, but makes him swear not to read anything before he burns them. And when Carlo promises to award him the order of Calatravo, Alvaro totally freaks out, which gets Carlo's antennae up. And so he does go through the letters and sees Leonora's portrait and figures out what exactly is going on here. And the two of them start to duel, but Alvaro escapes and runs away to a monastery. Interesting. Hmm. I wonder if hmm. it's the same monastery, not very <laughs> destinous. Many hijinks ensue when the for- when the soldiers and the fortune teller come back. The plot kind of comes to a screeching halt here for a good amount of time. But eventually, Don Carlo shows up back at the monastery looking... Uh, which is apparently the only monastery anywhere in Europe because it's where everyone yep. keeps ending up. Yeah. He's looking for Don Alvaro, and instead of accepting Don Alvaro's offer of peace, he starts chasing him. And where does that chase lead? But right to the cave where Leonora is hiding. And so she runs out in the <laughs> middle of her brother and her fiance having this duel. Alvaro wounds Carlo, and when Leonora rushes over to embrace him, he stabs her in the heart to get revenge for her fiancé having killed their father. Um, So in the original version of the opera, Alvaro throws himself off of a cliff because he's so distraught about this, but Verdi did go back and revise it, and in the revised version, he stops cursing fate and is redeemed. And that's really the version that pretty much everyone does, unless you're um, in Russia because the original version did premiere in Russia. The reason why this opera is really quite great is that some it has some of the best arias that Verdi ever wrote. The one you probably already know is Pache Pache dio," which is yeah. right... Like I'm almost at the very end of the opera when Leonora is just like, oh my god, let me die. I can't take this anymore. I'm stuck in this cave. Everyone is mad at me. Please, <laughs> lord, give me peace. But that is... I think her fourth aria in the opera, and they're practically all bangers. The tenor and baritone each get a great aria in as well. There are some great duets. There's an incredible love duet right in the first act before um, the gun goes off by accident. The dual duet is really pretty pretty fantastic too. And because this opera requires such extreme uh, vocalism, many of there there are a handful of recordings of it that are really quite good with like names you know leontine price made three or four recordings of it between the studio and live performances mm. that were recorded and distributed renata tabaldi i think has three recordings of it Um, Zinka Milanov was a famous interpreter of this role For my money, the best one is Martina Arroyo Who is so radiant in these soaring lines The way, I want to play a clip of her singing the second aria Which is right when she gets to the monastery And let's listen to that now The way she handles those arching lines that just build and build and build, and her voice spins like with this effortlessly gleaming tone and just soars over the orchestra, over the chorus. There is a lot of that that is required of Leonora in the show. And when you've got a voice like that, like I'm willing to put up with any kind of ridiculous plot contrivances <laughs> that might happen. Um, but she's really not the only one who gets glory. The tenor role has one of ha- has a really fantastic Verdi aria that um, is m- much better than some of the more famous ones, I think, like Celeste Aida. And, but it does require, like, some heft in your voice to make it work. The people who sing this role are, like, Carlo Bergonzi, Mario Del Monaco, um mm. someone whose name is on almost every young artist program at a major house who <laughs> we don't really need to talk <laughs> about right now. Uh, Richard Tucker sang this opera a lot. Famously, Pavarotti was supposed to sing this and never did because of a curse that we will get to later. <sighs> uh, and uh, for the baritone role, you've got, you know, singers like Bastianini, Cappuccini, uh Mario Sereni, Robert Mero, basically any Italian baritone worth a salt has recorded or sung this role. Um, the the Romani fortune teller is kind of a nothing role in terms of met- in terms of actually doing anything, but she does also get two pretty fun arias and basically every Italian... Verdi Mezzo, who sings Amneris, has also sung this role. Yeah. Um, but the most famous part of the opera musically, besides Pace Pace Mio Dio," is most likely the overture. Like, you're much more likely to hear music from this opera in a concert hall than you are in the opera house. Mm. Um, the overture is one of the few actual fully written out overtures with with tunes and motifs from the whole opera that Verdi ever wrote instead of just a little preludio that, per, that precedes the first scene. Uh, And it was a real standard of the concert hall. Uh, And the way that the main themes of the aria show up in the overture makes this opera feel really cohesive in a way that Italian opera is often, like, poo-pooed as not being. It's much like uh, Gluck was able to do with Ibigini. Like, this is not just a parade of numbers either. Like, this is some of the most consistent motivic writing that I think Verdi really ever did in his compositional career. Ironic considering how much the plot was literally all over the place. (laughs) Well, at least we have cohesion somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You need it. But 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 it's true. This opera really isn't performed by very much, and I think there there's a couple reasons why. Um, first of all, it's long for a Verdi opera. It's quite long. Most Verdi operas are um, you know, between two and a, two and a half hours of music, and this one is practically three. Uh which there are some scenes in it that just drag. The yeah. uh some chorus scenes that are in there for filler, probably to give the leads a freaking break because they're out there screaming at the top of their lungs for hours on end that that i don't really think add anything um it's also vocally incredibly challenging uh not just because it's verity but because you the the way the plot works like characters disappear for long stretches of the uh of the opera so you really are the only person on stage for a really long time much, more, much longer than in a typical Verdi opera, you, like, are expected to carry the whole thrust of the plot forward. Uh, and those long, long Verdian lines require both flexibility of your phrasing, a ton of dynamic range, a ton of just, like, note range. They go low, they go high, they're all over the place. And the vocal domains are what you would need from, like, an aida or a balo. And those are mm-hmm. two much more popular operas. So if you got the forces to pull one of those off, it is, you know, you're much more likely to get... To get one of them to work, um, let's hear an example of some of those long lines I'm talking about. This is a clip of Bergonzi singing the Act Three tenor aria "La vita e inferno." <laughs> it's like cabaye levels of breath control that you need in order to make it through those lines. And he like, he, he does pretty great, but it is just absolutely bananas. What is required of the singers?
2: You, I know that we're, we have to move on, but I, you have to hear the Jose Carreras performance from, uh, I forget. It's from from Spain, I think Uh from, uh, from 1970. It's an Italian performance. I think a teatro or something like that, but it's a very easy to find YouTube clip. And it's, Jose Carreras at his best. If you've never been a fan of his, you will become a fan watching yeah. him sing that aria. Yeah.
3: And so the plot of this, as we've alluded to before, you know, it's a bit sprawling and it's a bit implausible. Um, and there are really only three characters. There's a host of people who keep popping in and out of their lives, but there's really only three characters that we care about. Um, and like I said, they all tend to disappear from the drama for like an entire act at a time. Um, <laughs> and, most of their choices make absolutely zero sense at any point during this opera. Uh, they are, they, (laughs) they just don't do what you would expect a human being to do. Um, (laughs) and the plot, and that makes the plot itself turn on this highly implausible series of coincidences. Um, but I would maybe jujitsu this and say that it's a, maybe a bit more of a strength of this opera, which is because it's a, it's a piece about making sense of the universe. Uh, and if you're looking at it as a linear plot piece like that doesn't necessarily tell you what you're going to get out of verity like i think it's about these en- these encounters and these mishaps of the three of these three characters and how they keep colliding and how and like the relationship between what is in your control and what is out of your control so it's like in if anything it's like more of a series of vignettes than a true linear plot the most famous reason why you're not going to hear this opera in the concert or in the opera house is that it is cursed. That goes, La maledizione! <laughs> you might remember this from our Halloween Spooktacular Ghost Stories <laughs> episode back in October. Uh, the, the curse of this opera goes all the way back to its premiere where uh, the, it was delayed due to a singer's illness. But by far, the most famous evidence for the curse of La Forza del Destino comes from a performance at the Metropolitan Opera from one baritone, Leonard Warren, who literally dropped dead of a heart attack, in the middle of singing his aria, to die a tremendous thing. Let's hear a clip of that aria right here, of Leonard Warren singing it. I still love this opera and the reason why you should care is that it has some of Verdi's most sophisticated use of musical symbolism uh that and that's really that's really shown through the way that these themes and these motifs keep popping up throughout the opera but also in the way that they are juxtaposed against each other to talk about that kind of duality of nature that I was talking about earlier that there's that really frenetic energy of the fate motif uh that that the low strings do that's often set against this really slowly unfolding, arching, aching lyricism of the vocal lines. uh, And this kind of push-pull between trying to make your own choices and be your own person and a fate that won't allow you to do that and just renders you powerless in the face of happenstance. Um, It's maybe not the most traditional source of drama in, in terms of what we expect from opera today, but it can really create some mm. opportunities for spectacular um just nail you to the wall sing, musical moments and particularly if you've got a voice that can really carry it so to take us home let's listen to my favorite and yours opera box scores original hall of fame inductee <laughs> leontine price singing pache pache mio Dio."
0: Awesome.
1: I love that performance. I love Latine Price. I love this opera. Uh, absolutely worth checking out. I've got one more for all you listeners out there, uh, which is a little different, I think, from uh, your two uh, two picks. Uh, my pick is Leosh Janacek's Yenufa, uh, or Yeyi uh, Pastorninkia. I apologize to all of our Czech listeners. That translates to her stepdaughter, but usually you just hear it as Yenufa. Uh, uh, this is a, a great uh, little opera um, uh, by uh, Janáček that is probably the most important opera in Czech repertoire outside of probably Smetna's Bartered Bride, um, which that that alone should probably put it on the list for you uh, if you have any sort of curiosity in like listening to operas outside the, the big three countries. Um, because Czech opera really is kind of a neglected little corner of the opera world, I think. It's got so many great pieces coming out of it, but it really wasn't until, uh, after the cold war that we started to hear a lot of these masterpieces bubble back to the top, uh, here in the West. Um, and we have a situation here, uh, if you remember my, uh, hall of fame from way back when, uh, a, a similar situation where this opera was not actually heard, in its original version at all for over 70 years um, um, since its premiere, because uh, much like uh, Boris Skudinov, it was really only known in a revised ber- version that cut out all of the interesting stuff, um, the stuff that we go to Janáček <laughs> for today. Um, the, uh, so basically Janáček was a really fascinating composer. He was very, very interested in folklore Uh, And uh, folk music. Uh, He's very famously also a late bloomer. Uh, This opera uh, premiered in 1904. And it's his first opera that really anyone ever talks about. And he was already, I believe, in his 50s at this point in time, because I think he was born in 57. I could be wrong. Uh, I'll look that up in a second. uh, but basically, this is uh, really sort of an introduction of a new type of Czech opera based in that nationalistic sort of folklore. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, um, because uh, because I I get so excited talking about uh, Czech opera and uh, Eastern European opera, especially. Um, but I really want to emphasize that this is not your typical Western opera, but because it's his first opera that anyone talks about, it has a lot of those m- more accessible elements that you don't necessarily get in later Janáček works. So if you're familiar with late 19th century opera and you want to dip your toes into Czech music, this is probably the way to go. Uh, if you're more like me uh, and want to do something a little weird, you might start with uh, in uh, The House of the Dead, but you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, this is, so basically... Uh, Yenufa is very, very, uh, realistic in sort of the, the, almost the verismo sense of the word. It, it's very much interested in the struggles of ordinary people, um, and their problems, which is one, another reason I don't think it gets performed too much because the story is frankly, a little bit of a bummer all the way through. And you kind of need a family tree to figure out what's going
3: on. Also true. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I kind of wrote down a little a little sort of quick like synopsis. I'll do my best here. So uh, let me see if I can find. Uh, okay, so basically uh Ye- Yenufa, the titular character, is caught up in a love triangle between two half-brothers, uh, Laka and, Sh- and Steva. Uh, it might be Steva, I think. Uh, she loves uh, Steva and becomes pregnant with his child, which makes Laka jealous. He slices her cheek with a knife in retaliation. I cut you. Exactly. Very literally. Uh, And because uh, Yenufa can't catch a break, uh, she becomes a little disfigured, and that means that Steva leaves her, uh, which makes Laka kind of her only option for marriage. So Yenufa's stepmother, Kostelnitschka, lies to him and says that the baby uh, that was uh, Steva's baby is dead. And now once she says that, well, she's trapped in the lie now. So she's like, I got to go out and drown this baby. So she does. Um, And uh, so because uh, Yanofa has to have this husband to support her because this is, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Czechoslovakia in, you know, (laughs) the 1800s, you have you really do have to have that. So um, they uh, so she drowns the baby and gaslights Yenufa into saying the baby was stillborn. Um, the body ends up being discovered at the wedding, uh, and Yanufa gets so distressed, the townspeople are initially want to um, basically hang her for the crime. Then uh, Kosnel, uh, Kosnel- Ch- Nichka has to come forward and admit to, uh, to murdering the baby, and then Yenufa forgives her, And uh, Laka, who is the person she is marrying, says that, uh, uh, well, she tries to let him go and say, like, you don't want to be with me, you know, Uh, and he says, actually, I do want to be with you. So it's a happy ending with sort of the, the kind of abusive boyfriend kind of thing. It's kind of a bummer, but it is really, really an interesting piece in terms of how it deals with these very kind of real problems. And that ties into the music as well, because, as I said earlier, Janacek was very interested in folk music and, in fact, was obsessed to a degree. I don't think any other composer has been with imitating specific dialectical um, uh pitchings, speed, how lines are delivered, uh, specifically of the Moravian dialect, which was very much uh, uh, something that he was surrounded by in his folkloric sc- studies. So he wasn't just incorporating the tunes, he was literally incorporating the speech patterns on like almost at a mo- molecular level, right, in order to create uh, his music. And uh, Yenufo was really the first time he, he started to fully implement that into his music and consequently is the first time anyone started talking about Janacek. Um, I want the folk influence is very apparent throughout the opera. Um, it doesn't get quite as intense as some of his later operas, so you still have some more conventional tunes here and there. One of uh, Janacek's early influences was Tchaikovsky. Um, and you really hear a lot of Tchaikovsky and how he sets straight up folk music in this opera. There's a, at the wedding and act three, there is a scene where a bunch of uh, peasant girls sing uh, during the wedding. And it really, really reminds me of uh, act one of Eugene Onjagin with the peasant choruses. So let's go ahead and uh, hear a little bit of that. All of my recordings are going to be from the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh uh, Macaris studio recording so let's just hear a little bit of the wedding song chorus to hear an example of that Obviously, this is very tonal. Uh, this is very accessible to nineteenth-century audiences, but there's uh, there's also something a little bit different about it too, right? I said before that this uh, the original orchestration did not really wasn't really around for seventy years, and in fact, Macaris himself was the one who compiled the original orchestrations, not just for this opera, but for uh, Katya Kabanova uh Vec Macropoulos um and uh the House of the Dead he, he was restoring these because in the at the time period people uh heard of the orchestrations particularly um and and thought it was very odd sounding and you'll probably and you've heard you might have heard a little bit in that clip there is the way he spaces out chords and instruments is very interesting especially in later works you you there's this almost feeling of hollowness between the extreme high strings and the, uh, lower instruments. And there's nothing in the middle. Um, it's a very interesting sound. And consequently, I don't think Janacek, uh, his music, I don't think his music records particularly well. This is, uh, his music I think is something that you should try to experience live if you can. Um, because that's when, uh, you really understand, oh, this is how these sounds are supposed to interact and how, uh, how they're supposed to make me feel, which you don't always get from recordings. However, um, Obviously, the uh, Macaris recordings are iconic because they restored the original intentions of the composer. And they all star um, the, uh, the amazing Elisabeth Zudestrom, who made the premiere recordings of all of those uh, sort of titular uh, 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 characters in Katakabanova, Macropolis Affair. And, of course, uh, Yanufa, which you've been talking about. This is a the 1982 recording, uh, and it is still, in my opinion, the definitive recording of this opera. And they're all worth checking out. Um, so uh, I want to play another little clip, clip of Sudestrum interpreting uh, the prayer. This is the prayer that happens when she's praying for the, sort of the safety of her baby right before she gets gaslit into thinking the baby was already dead. So uh, take a listen to that. Thank you.
3: Those Soderstrom recordings are incredible. I will say, They're if you can so find good. it, there is a fantastic live performance of this that's been recorded and released on CD at some point with Eve Quayler conducting. That has oh, Gabriela really? Benatčkova as Yenufa and Leni Riesenek as the Kostelnička, and it oh, is wow, like that'd be great right cast, white hot electric performance. Oh, that'd be great. Um, I didn't even
1: know about that one.
3: And the one from London with uh, Karita Matala as the Kostelnychka from, like, maybe yeah, ten years that. ago is also fantastic.
1: Yeah. This is uh, this is a, a great one, especially I think there are a lot of... Uh, Janicek is having a bit of a moment right now, so there are a lot of, like, new live recordings going out, uh, particularly of native Czech speakers uh, that really understand the line of the of the text that really helps. But I think one of the things that makes uh, Söderström's uh, portrayal particularly important beyond the historic importance of the recordings is how strong of an actor she is this is Yennefer's show this is uh she goes through hell and back and the the singer has to really be able to embody all of that suffering and still be believed when she uh eventually forgives everything that's been done for her this opera is all about forgiveness in the face of these truly horrible things happening to her. And sometimes, honestly, that can be kind of unsatisfying. It took me a while to get into Yennefer because uh, it, it really is almost uncomfortable the way that the happy ending is still her in with uh, being married to a person who we saw, you know, sl- slash her face earlier in the opera. It's, it's really kind of intense, but it's also very real. Um, this is uh, a, a really interesting example of forgiveness being the central part of an opera, which is a, a genre that's full of revenge, bloody drama. Um, so, so to see something like this, something that's so very Czech in how it presents itself, is really unique. And a great introduction to Janáček and Czech opera in general. And you, you really do kind of feel like a better person after seeing Yennefer bear every single <laughs> struggle. And it's really, really worth checking out. I want to play out just uh, one clip. Uh, this is from that same recording with uh, Vislav Ochman and Sodostrum singing the finale where everything's coming together. And, um, and they're saying that they're going to be together forever and they've gotten past this. And um, hopefully it doesn't get any worse after the curtain goes down. Gents, do your ears feel spring trained? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to add that one of the reasons why you should
2: care about um, these operas based on the House of Atreus is that it does feel very much like Game of Thrones or any other uh, of these, uh, you know, pre medieval types of legends that we have that have become very famous. I don't know, like. Besides Game of Thrones, whatever you watch that has this type of <laughs> these types of characters and complicated relationships, and you know, how can a sister not recognize her brother and you think about like somebody being in exile and coming back and not recognizing them? I mean, like stuff like that, you know, I guess happened
1: all the time back in, it must in have. Greek mythology. That's the only <laughs> And if you liked the final season of Game of Thrones, maybe yeah. La Forza del Destino is right for you. <laughs> <laughs> Implausible character choices? Check yeah. there it is. <laughs> All right, we have done it. We have spring-trained your ears. We're back. We're off of Dallas. We're going to do a lot more clip shows from now on, so I hope you're enjoying it. Let's move to the two-minute drill.
0: This just in, the two-minute drill.
1: All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. La Scala
2: will continue to present Russian artists and Russian repertoire, but has emphasized that Valery Gergiev would not be performing at the opera house. We considered him like a politician. The others, no, said general director Dominique Meyer. Gergiev is almost a culture minister. La Scala's upcoming season will include singers such as Anna Netrebko, Ildar Abdrazakov, Dmitry Korchak, and Ekaterina Semenchuk.
3: San Francisco Opera has named the six multidisciplinary innovators who are decidedly outside of the opera field into the company's RD initiative called Instigators. The inaugural program includes Radio Lab's Jad Abumrad, virtual reality writer director Samantha Gorman, the artist artistic director of Bangalore's Nalanda Art Studio. Apicek Majumdar, design technologist Paula Tay, Chef Bryant Terry, a James Beard and NAACP Image Award-winning activist, and queer architect designer and software engineer Peter Zuspan. And here we thought we were the instigators for getting kicked off of the Dallas Opera Network.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in pre-concert remarks of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Yannick Nizé Sagan spoke about the ongoing gun violence in the US in general and Philadelphia in particular. Quote Just this week, just in our city, 30 people have been shot by gun violence. We are way past the time for thoughts, prayers, and all of that. Speaking about music's ability to transcend political division, he continued, "quote We are one society, and we need to take care of that society."
2: Singing "Ke faro senza erudice," friend of the show Kimon Murat won the 40th annual International Hans Gabor Hans Gabor Belvedere singing competition. Kimon was joined at the podium by Ukrainian baritone Nikita Ivashenko in second place and South African-based baritone Ruben Mbonabi in third.
3: In more awards news, Mezzo Soprano and stage director Brigitte Fassbender has been awarded the Premi Franz Schubert for her interpretations of the music of the prize's namesake composer in a statement Fassbender called Schubert the greatest of all the composers and the love of her life Ooh. we certainly <laughs> hope the two of them can make it work
2: <laughs> in trade news deutsch opera am rhein has named harry og to be the company's new kapellmeister for the next two seasons and giacomo sagripanti an international opera awards young conductor of the year has been named music director of the tbilisi opera and
1: orchestra on the disabled list, baritone John Lundgren is bowing out of his Votan obligations at Bayreuth for personal reasons. Egils Silins will take over for the Rhine for Rheingold, and Tomasz Konietzny will take on the role for Valkyrie and Siegfried. The cycle opens July 31st. Exit stage
3: right, David Lloyd Jones, former music director of England's Opera North, has died at age 88. Lloyd-Jones was a founding member of the Leeds-based touring company and served as music director from 1978 until 1990, establishing Opera North as an acclaimed national company.
2: And on this day, June 14th, in 1466, it was the birth of the Venetian music printer Ottaviano del Petrucci, you know who that is, the namesake of IMSLP. Yeah. in 1730 it was the birth of the prolific italian composer no one has ever heard of antonio sacchini in florence <laughs> in 1732 carl heinrich grounds lo specchio della fedeltà which has music that no longer exists uh gave its first performance in braunschweig in 1747 johann adolf Haus's la spartana generosa premiered in dresden in 1763 another Lesser known composer, but apparently more known than uh, Sacchini, Johannes Simon Meyer or Giovanni Simone Meyer was born in Bavaria. In 1820, Schubert's Die Zwillingsbruder was premiered in in Vienna, probably a favorite work of Fassbender in 1877. (laughs) It was the birth of French mezzo-soprano Jane Bathory in Paris, known as an interpreter of contemporary French songs, often accompanying herself at the piano. She sang with Toscanini in the first La Scala performance of Hansel and Gretel. In 1884, American tenor of Irish descent John McCormick was born in 1910. Rudolf Kempe, the German conductor, was born near Dresden. In 1928, one for Weston, Prokofiev's The Fiery Angel was oh, premiered yeah. in Paris. And The Little Sweep, or Let's Make an Opera and Entertainment for Young People, gave its first performance on this day, June 14th, in 1949.
1: Happy Fiery Angel Day, everybody. That's your two minute drill. La statue
0: de bronze. A
2: little bit of Jane Batori probably accompanying herself in an adorable announcement from the stage as to what, or probably in the recording studio, what she was playing, a song by Eric Satie.
1: I think it's uh, uh, always nice to... Uh, uh, learn about your, um, you know, that, that sort of hot, you know, hot goss among the, these singers, you know, you open up the tabloid, see who's got a crush on who. And it turns out Brigitte Fossbender uh, was, uh, simping for Franz Schubert this whole time, uh, which, I, I honestly, <laughs> here's the, here's the thing about Brigitte Fossbender. She has been the object of
2: desire of many lesbians over the decades, but yeah. she, she has been very secretive about her own sexuality, and she's not public about it. And you would think, oh, she's got to be like, she's like the one of the most butch lesbians you could imagine, you know? She's got to be out. She's not. So as it turns mm. out, she is devoted to Franz Schubert. And it's a very Schubert specific alone. sexuality that <laughs> we
1: supported here on That's Opera Box Score. Happy Pride Month, kunst, everybody. Do hold a kunst indeed. Yeah.
2: One of, the, one of the new boxes you can check on the census form. Uh, send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at opera box score at gmail. Send us a voicemail like Anthony from the Bronx. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot take.
1: Yes, it's such a good deal. And uh we'll have more of uh, uh of uh, George next week, but until then I'm in charge of sort of divvying out the news. So, Matt, what do you want to talk about this week? <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I'm
3: I'm super happy for Tomasz Konieczny and Egil Seelens. If I had to be going to this uh to this ring cycle at Bayreuth, if I got to be going to this ring cycle at Bayreuth, it would be to see Lisa Davidson, see Glinda
1: in oh, God, me too.
3: Uh in Valkyrie, because can you imagine just like the ocean of sound that is going to be pouring out
1: of? That I am <laughs> waiting for her to make it to Chicago at some point. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm just like, come on, somebody, next revival, next revival, next revival, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's
2: one of those voices that, like, it. You know, it's record. She sounds great in recordings, but you really don't get the magnitude of it. And everybody who I who I heard has heard her in the hall. They say like, okay, yeah. That's a once in a lifetime. Sound, yeah. So
1: everyone describes her voice like uh, like they're describing Birgit Nielsen, you know. Uh, and I, I, I for one can't wait to hear it. Hopefully Chicago will wise up soon and and get her to come in. And speaking of wising up, I think that uh, uh, I think that's a great uh, I think it's a great use of uh, Yannick and Aziz-Agan's platform to talk about gun violence. Um, I think it's better than an open letter. <laughs> Matt, I'm sorry. Um, I, I am inclined to agree that most <laughs> things are better than an open letter. <laughs> I, I, I do think that obviously, you know, there's only so much that um, uh, musicians can do to uh, talk about uh, the ongoing epidemic of gun violence in this country. Um, but I think that calling attention to it in, in a hall with that, you know, undoubtedly includes some major donors, some movers and shakers in the community. Uh, I think is very important. Um, and uh, I think that it's very uh, obviously we've seen a lot of, um, you know, with recent political events, particularly in Russia, we've seen a lot of uh, singers kind of hem and haw over their political positions. And I think standing up and speaking out for what you believe in is the way to go if you're going to be uh, an artist in this country and in the world in general. So I, I really support uh, Yannick Nizasekhan's statements on this.
2: So I feel like, oh, San Francisco Opera, yeah, uh, just sort of like, so, okay, who are like the weirdest people we could find? Who does like the most, <laughs> like wacko, you know, non-expected genre-bending stuff? Let's see if we can teach them about opera, you know. And I, that's basically what I these think people that's are. great. It's like, it's like they approached a chef. <laughs>
3: <laughs> opera and singers so, have to eat too.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm curious to see what comes out of this, but uh, as you know, uh, dear listener, um, opera is not one of those things that, like, you hit the ground running. Like, there's so much... Work you have to do to begin to enjoy it. Yes, you can hear somebody saying Pache Pache Mio Dio, but will you ever know the plot of La Forza das, you know even after today? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Science point to there, know. There are, definitely, <laughs> there are definitely some operas you just kind of turn off your brain and just let it, let it wash over you a little bit. I think this is a great initiative. I think that obviously the, the radio lab, uh, J- Jad Abumrad is a great uh, sort of person to go to. Uh, I Wink. think the virtual reality is, uh, <laughs> I think it'd be great if we were on this list, but, you know, uh, I think that uh, it's one of the things that we've been seeing, especially uh, over the past couple years since the pandemic, is an increased focus of opera companies on what about the people outside of the insular little opera world? I mean, as much as you... Uh, you and I uh, here on this podcast are part of that insular opera world in some ways there. It's so important to not get so caught up in in, in like, navel gazing and thinking about like well what do we think is cool right yeah you need to look outside of opera and see what other people think is interesting and seeing how it might be incorporated I think it's a really exciting initiative from San Francisco and what does remain to be seen and I'm I'm honestly hoping for the
3: best and think that there's a very good chance that this could lead to positive results but I'm thinking of like some of the directors that the Metropolitan Opera brought in to direct their shows who were outside of the world of opera and they were like we'll just bring in innovative people and everything will magically work like no you do have to at least be interested in the art form on its own merits and like want to learn about it and improve it at the same time so fingers crossed let's let's see what happens i i really hope that it it works out well
1: let's hope it will end up being a good call and not a bad call and oh hey look at that guess what time it is
0: good call bad call on Opera Box Score.
1: That's right, it's good call, bad call. It is how we end every show here on Opera Box Score. Oliver Camacho, what do you have for me?
2: I just want to give a little shout out to friend of the show, Haymarket Opera Company, uh, which will be uh, doing the Chicago premiere of uh, La Mont an- Anonyme. Oh, the opera yeah. by uh, the Chevalier de San George, Joseph Bologna, which will star none other than Nicole Cabell. That is a get. That's a get. Company. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> last year, last year they got uh, Beijing Maita to sing Orlando. This year they got Nicole Cabell. So it's just not like the biggest budget opera company out there. But um, to spend all your money on one person for well, why not make it Nicole Cabell? <laughs> why
3: not? Yeah. Matt Cummings. Uh, if you watch the Tony Awards this weekend, let's give it up for the newest minted EGOT winner, Jennifer Hudson, yes. who uh, oh, just yeah. won a Tony for producing the um, the show *A Strange Loop*. And I just want to give her an extra special shout out because I think it's really great to see how she is using her platform as uh, one of the preeminent Black actresses and singers and musicians in in America to lift up other artists mm-hmm. and to make sure that their work makes it onto Broadway too and to be a pioneer in the field. I think that's a really commendable uh way to continue your career beyond uh after you win an Oscar. So, no. hey yo.
1: My good call is an article from the New York Times by Zachary Wolf, the classical music cr- uh, critic, the new one after Anthony Thomasini left, uh detailing the uh the last season at the Met which famously Um, went through the entire season without uh, missing a single curtain despite the pandemic. Uh, and it's all about sort of the drama, both uh, on stage and behind the scenes, trying to pull that off, and it's a really fascinating read. I highly recommend it. Um, If George gets to this episode, he'll put it on the website. If not, you can find it by searching New York Times' website. I think it's well worth a read. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell, who can be found at normwaddell.com. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to get the full show on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow to get on, uh, get it on those. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can just hit that plus sign. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Supplies are somewhat limited. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is me. Your co For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and... Oliver Camacho again. I'm Weston (laughs) Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you sort through all the opera characters from the House of Atreus. Good luck. We're back with an all-new show next week where you'll get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Dustin Dilliams. Join us.